0: I love that song for a number of reasons, and most of them are really, really good reasons, but one of the reasons that it isn't as sanctified is that uh, that's one of the first songs that Luke learned to sing in our family worship time, and uh, so there's nothing like hearing a four-year-old sing, uh, look too quiet, too condefended, uh, and I, now every time I sing it, I hear that, which is probably not as helpful, um, but it is sweet for me. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. First Timothy chapter 5. And as you're turning there, I want to share with you a story that uh, probably isn't going to feel related to the text until I get to the end, so bear with me. Uh, but my wife and I, we've lived in a uh, one-floor apartment for as long as we've been married. And it's fun. We like it that way. Uh, and it was fun when we first got married, and it's even more fun now that there's three kids. Uh, it's fun tripping on each other. Uh, that, that whole process is fun. And for those of you who live in a single-floor apartment, you know that there are some things that are unique to that living arrangement. Like the fact that floor space is like gold. It's gold in that it's rare and it's precious, and that it causes wars. And and if that's true, which it is, then Christmas is like the Armageddon for people who live in single-floor apartments. And so you you get together with your family, and, and sweet Nana buys Luke an indoor ball pit. And you watch with horror as he like breaks the box because now you can't return it, you know. And as you're kind of trying to get him, then you see Abby opens the life-size stuffed pony, and Noel's got the plastic drum set that are somehow larger than normal drum sets and louder, and uh, and you know that your whole January is now going to be disaster until everybody's bored with these toys, and then they go to the. It's difficult, and you wonder how could this possibly relate. Here's the point: sometimes helping hurts. Sometimes, if we're not thoughtful about our generosity, we do more harm to the people that we're trying to help than good. And in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul is instructing young Timothy, and he's continuing on in what we started last week. He's talking to Timothy about his relationships in the church and how he needs to navigate through those. And here he presses on one relationship in particular, and that is Timothy and the church's relationship with the widows in Ephesus. And Paul's telling Timothy that he needs to be generous, but he needs to season that generosity with lots of wisdom. Or else, in trying to help, Timothy and the church are going to wind up hurting these women. That's what we're going to find in our text today. This is a very practical text, and we've got, co- we've got a lot of ground to cover. So would you look with me now to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're going to read from verses 3 to 16. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant living and active word to us today honor widows who are truly widows but if a widow has children or grandchildren let them first learn to show godliness to their own household to make some return to their parents for this is pleasing in the sight of god she who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on god and continues in supplications and prayers night and day but she who is self-indulgent is dead, even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may not be, with, so they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than sixty years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house. Not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me just take a moment in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just invite you now to open up our eyes and our minds to see what it is that we should see, and we know that we can't see what we need to see, and we can't hear what we need to hear apart from the help of your Spirit. So we just invite you now to move in a mighty way. I pray that you'd press this deep into our hearts. We thank you that you promise us that as your word goes forth, it never returns void. And so we declare the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, this is a very practical passage. In fact, this is the kind of passage that if you're reading at home in your daily devotions, you probably read this and you fly right through it without thinking an awful lot about how it applies to you. These are specific instructions for Timothy about a specific problem that he was facing in Ephesus. And yet, I will argue this morning that the general principles that underlie this passage and these instructions are universally applicable to benevolence ministry in every church, everywhere. And if you grew up in the church, then you're nodding. And if you didn't grow up in the church, then you're wondering, what is benevolence ministry? What does that mean? Well, benevolence is a word that we don't use as often in our culture, but it just means goodness. And somewhere along the way, the church picked up that word and we used it as a catch all for the ministry that that we do to the the people in our community. In fact, if you look at our church's budget, and we're going to be, by God's grace, we'll be approving our new budget in June, you'll see in our local missions a line called benevolence. So this past year, when a family in our neighborhood lost their home in a fire, we were able to bless them through our benevolence fund. And when churches in our family were knocked out with COVID or when they had other issues that took them out of work, we were able to help and support them through benevolence. And so now when you see that line, you know what it is, benevolence ministry. So the church has adopted this word. And this passage puts forward principles that inform how we do benevolent ministry as a church and as individuals. Now, here's the thing. Timothy, as he was reading this, understood that he needed these instructions, Young Timothy was, was looking at the stuff that was going on in Ephesus, and when he saw this in the letter, he leaned in real close, because he knew he needed to see this. We face a different challenge. Most of us just read that and listened to that read, and most of us thought, I don't think that this has anything to do with me. And I want you to hear this morning that it absolutely does. All of us are surrounded by urgent need. Even here in Aurelia, Ontario, Canada, surrounded by need. And all of us as Christians are commanded by Christ to serve with mercy and generosity those who are in need. Therefore, we need to understand and apply these principles so that as we help, our helping doesn't wind up hurting the people we're called to minister to. We need this. And so we're going to turn our attention to the text and we're going to consider these guiding principles for benevolence ministry. And the first principle we find in this passage is that benevolence must never undermine the role of the family. Now, Paul is adamant about this because he includes it not once, not twice, but three times in this short passage. So first, in verses three to four, if you look there, Paul writes, honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them, so allow them first to learn to show godliness to their own household, and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So the first thing we need to understand in our benevolence is that it is not our job to get in the way of what the family is called to do. Paul's writing to Timothy, and he's saying, Timothy, it it is good for children and grandchildren to honor their mothers, their mothers who sacrificed in order to raise them, their, their mothers who poured themselves out in order to care for them. He said, it is good for them now to have an opportunity to sacrifice and to care for their mothers. And, and if you get in the way of that, if you rob them of that opportunity, you might feel real good about it, but that is not helpful for them, Timothy. Now he goes on, though, because the reality is sometimes you have families that don't want to support their mothers. They don't want to support widows. And that was particularly the case in Ephesus. And so he goes on to warn in, in verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So in verses 3 to 4, he states the argument positively. He says, don't get in the way of this because this is good. It's good for them. It's good for the widows. Don't get in the way of this. Now he, he says in verse 8 negatively, and when they don't provide for their families, Timothy, that, that is a, an abomination So, Greco-Roman culture, Ephesus was a Greco-Roman city in the first century, and in that culture there was no system to provide welfare for widows in the community. That's part of the problem. That's why in Ephesus there was such an emergency. However, in the Greco-Roman culture there was a system for families to provide for their own widowed mothers. There's a thing called the dowry. So when a woman would get married, her parents would send her out with a, a small financial gift called a dowry. So let's imagine it's $10,000. Well, that, that is her dowry, and it goes with her. And if the marriage is ended and terminated in divorce, or if it's terminated and, and she becomes a widow, that dowry goes with her. And then the idea in the culture was that she would then come back in with her children. And with the children and the help of the dowry, she would be supported into old age. That was how people lived in the Greco-Roman culture. But apparently, in Ephesus, there were some Christians in the church who said, well, we don't actually need to take mom into our house because all those Christians, they're so nice that they'll take her in the house. And so we don't need to burden ourselves with trying to care for her because somebody else is going to care for her because those guys are just so nice. And they neglected their responsibility. And Paul turns his attention to those folks in Ephesus, and he said, If you have a relative that's in need, and you refuse to provide for her, then you have denied the faith. That's the language he uses. You're worse than an unbeliever, he says. says, Even your neighbors, your neighbors understand that they need to care for their mothers, but you in the church, you're ignoring her need? He uses strong language. And then as, if we flip ahead to the end of the passage, we begin to see some of the urgency. You wonder, like, what prompts Paul to speak in such a firm way? Well, look ahead to verse 16. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Why? Well, because it's, because it's good for her to do so, because it's, it's abomination for us to neglect our families. But then he goes on to say, because let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So Paul is saying, you need to step up and care for your mom because there's a widow over there who doesn't have any kids. So nobody's going to step up and care for her. So if you can assume your responsibility here, that'll give us the freedom to assume our responsibility there. Paul is speaking passionately because there are people who are going to starve to death if they don't get this sorted out in Ephesus. The need is just too great for anybody to be neglecting their responsibility And if we want to minister effectively to those who are in need, this is not the crisis. Here in Canada, we have systems in place to support those who are in need. Nevertheless, there are all kinds of problems around us, Redeemer. And we're going to confront those. And as we try to provide help, as we give our benevolent care, we need to ensure that we don't undermine the role of the family. Now with that said, Paul turns his attention to those widows that don't have family support. Right, so they don't have children, they don't have grandchildren. But, and yet, so you'd think, you know, if you narrow down that pool, that, well, the church can take all of them. But it turns out that when you look at the people who don't have children, don't have grandchildren, it was still a huge number of widows. So now Timothy's still wondering, well, what do I do with this need? This brings us to our second instruction. Paul says, benevolence must never rob a person of dignity. That's our second principle. So look with me again at verse 9. He says, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. Now, we're going to get into the specifics of the less than 60 years of age and wife of one husband. We're going to get into that in our next principle, but here I want to zoom in on that word enrolled. What what is he talking about? Commentators present two options, and uh, the majority lean one way, but about 20% of commentators think that Paul's talking about just a formal list. So he's saying, before you, so Timothy's got a list of the the women that the church is supporting, and Paul's saying, before you enroll another one on that list, here are some qualifications. So a few people think that. The majority believe, and church history would suggest, that Paul was actually talking about enrolling these women into some kind of ongoing support, like bringing them onto the payroll of the church, and they would then assume some responsibilities. For example, in the 2nd and 3rd century, we see the development of the, this order of widows in the church. If you're trying to kind of put a, a picture on it, just think of kind of like a modern-day nun. That movement can kind of trace its way all the way back. It's obviously changed and permeated, but it can trace its way back to this idea. And in the 2nd and 3rd century, we saw an order of widows in the church, and they were supported by the congregation. They were on the payroll, and they were responsible for prayer, and visitation, and and caring for the sick, and caring for the orphans, and teaching other women. And it seems very likely that what was happening in Ephesus was something very similar to what we see in the second and third centuries, that that's kind of a a permeation of what was happening in Ephesus, meaning in Ephesus they had provided a, a clever solution, a thoughtful solution to the crisis that was going on in their city. They had set apart some of the women, some of these widows, and they said, we're going to care for you, but we're actually going to bring you on the payroll. We're going to bring you on the staff, give you ongoing support. But it's not just going to be a handout. It is going to be a delegation of some responsibility. It's going to dignify them with a task that is appropriate and applicable to their life stage. John Stott says here, Christian relief should never demean its beneficiaries but rather it should increase their sense of dignity. Now, of course, Ephesus and and the church there were responding to a particular need where they were overwhelmed with widows. They had to find some kind of solution, and this was a healthy solution for them. We have different challenges here, but as we address those challenges in Aurelia, I think immediately of uh, so many folks experiencing homelessness. I think immediately of the escalating rental prices and the fact that we're going to have so many of our people who are, who are stuck, as we think about these needs all around us, we need to address those needs in a way that doesn't rob people of dignity. And that's going to take thoughtfulness. That's going to take a great deal of wisdom. And we'll have to think carefully about it. That's the second principle that we find in this text. The third is found in the very same verse. So I told you that we'd zoom in on some of the other details. So let's look back now at verse 9. This time we'll read all the way to the end of verse 10. So he says, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, if she's brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Here we learn that benevolence must always be distributed with prudence and priority. And that passage almost feels offensive at first glance. Doesn't it? Paul is telling Timothy, if you think about it, he's telling Timothy to be unapologetically discriminatory in his distribution of the church's support. He's saying that if Timothy's going to have any hope of really making a difference in Ephesus, then he's going to have to learn the art of saying no to some people, an art that many of us have not yet learned. Timothy's going to need to be prudent. He's going to need to ask the right questions. He'll need to prioritize, like a nurse running into a crowded emergency room trying to assess the need. Timothy's going to have to to put on that kind of hat as he assumes this responsibility. Because the church in Ephesus was limited in its resources. P.S. The church in Aurelia is limited in its resources. They can't put every widow in the city on the church's payroll. They would love to. They can't do it. As we said, so he's winnowed down. There's there's widows with family, and we're going to enable the family to to support their widows. But then he leans over here, and you've still got this enormous pool of need. And Paul says to Timothy, "You you just can't do it. You cannot meet... All of that need, Timothy. So you need to distribute this benevolence with prudence and priority. So for example, he tells Timothy to show priority to the older women, those not less than 60 years of age. That's a very practical prioritization. Because the younger women have a better chance of, of finding a husband, finding someone to support them. They have a better chance, of, they've got more energy to be able to go out and to work in the field. And Paul says, Timothy, that needs to be on your radar as you're discerning who to bring onto this list, to bring onto the payroll. Prioritize those who are in greatest need. But then he says, you've got to prioritize also the women who have shown a track record in faithfulness. So now he's, he's winnowed the list down again, so now he's dealing only with the women who are 60 years and older, but even still, he cannot support all of them. So Paul says, now you need to discern from this pool of women who you're going to support, who you're going to bring into this ongoing relationship of care. And he says, as you discern from this group, you need to prioritize faithfulness. You need to look at this group and say, who are the women who, who were faithful to their husband while he was living, who just demonstrated a life of faithfulness? Who are the women who, who raised up their children in a way that was just godly and honorable? Who are the women who showed hospitality and opened their homes? Who are the women who were washing people's feet in this act of service in their life? Who are the women who have displayed godliness? As you're looking at the list, you need to show priority now to those women. Unapologetically so, Timothy. It's hard, it's not easy, but you've got to do this. And that same principle, by the way, is laid out in Paul's letter to the Galatians. In Galatians 6.10, Paul wrote, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And we say, amen, yes, Do good to everyone, and then he leans in, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So Paul says, do good to all, overflow, be an overflow church, let the blessing overflow to your community, to all those who are around around you, yes, and amen. But then he says, but the greatest support should be reserved for those in the household of faith. And then we just feel a little uncomfortable saying amen, don't we? It's just that feels a little bit off. In fact, not only is that a bit abrasive, for some of us, that is exactly the opposite of how we would normally conduct ourselves. Imagine you've got two people who are in need. One person is a Christian, one person is not, and you've got $10. What do you do with these two people in need? For many of us, we'd say, well, cut it in half, five and five. That's fair. So For some of us, actually, we would, we would say, well, you know what? The person who's the Christian, they already love Jesus, and they, I think I'm actually going to give the 10 to the person who's not a Christian, and maybe that way they will want to love Jesus, and they'll be blown away by the generosity, which makes sense, doesn't it? And yet, Paul, in both of these passages, is saying that's actually not, not the approach. Do good to all, but show priority to the household of faith. Now, How do you put a number on that? I don't know. Is that put $8 over here and put 2 over here. I'm not going to try and put a percentage on it. But he is saying there should be some priority shown to those who have have shown a record of faithfulness, those who are in the family of God. Why is that? Lots of reasons kind of stem from wisdom. I would say certainly it's because the church is a family. Paul has been hitting that time after time in this letter. The church is a family. So going back to what we saw earlier, if if it is an abomination for a son to ignore the need of his mother when he's able to help, it stands to reason that it would also be an abomination for a spiritual son to ignore the needs of his spiritual mother, right? We're the family, so we should love each other and come around each other in such a way that it resembles family. That's got to be part of it. Part of it must stem from witness. I mean, let's be honest. There's something compelling about the way that we love one another and support one another. So go back to this scenario. you got the, the unbelieving woman and the believing woman. So if you decide, sorry, believing woman, you already love Jesus, you're on your own, and you help the unbelieving woman, as much as she appreciates the gratitude, it sure does say something about what happens when you follow Jesus, doesn't it? It's like, boy, I'm never going to follow Jesus. I don't want to be the one who's ignored. For, right? There is something compelling about the way that we support each other. And we should support one another as the family of God in such a way that the outside world looks in and says, wow, that is really special. It's special the way you came around that person when they were in a season of loss. Special the way that you lifted up that family when he lost his job. It's special that you didn't turn a blind eye to their urgent need when he got that diagnosis. That's, that should be compelling. Then the third reason for why we give priority to those who are faithful in the family of God, I think stems from verses 11 to 13. So let's look there now and we'll find our next principle in this passage. He says, "...but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house." Not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So one of the reasons why our benevolence should go to those who are within the household of God is because, our fourth principle, benevolence must never enable sin. Now those are confusing verses. If you're sitting here thinking, what is that about? You're not alone. Those are confusing verses. At first glance, doesn't it look like Paul is saying that widows shouldn't remarry? talks about them going after Satan. And is that what he's saying? Well, no, because just keep reading in verse 14, he goes on to say, "So I would have younger widows marry." So that's not, so this isn't a ban on remarriage for widows. Then what is it? Why is it such a big deal in verse 11 for these younger women? Why he says don't enroll them because they're going to go on and remarry. This goes back to that enrollment piece. And commentators generally agree the consensus is that these women were coming into this relationship with the church. They were coming on staff. And they must have taken some sort of vow. Some sort of vow that said, I'm not going to remarry. I'm married to Christ, and I'm going to serve the church. That seems to be what has happened. And Paul is saying, "Now, if you're, if you're going to put younger women in that position, Timothy, you put them in a position where they're, they might wind up breaking that vow. They might have a, a godly young man come along who's a, who woos them. And now they're breaking their vow to Christ and going off with him. And that's actually your fault, Timothy, because you put them in that spot. It seems to be that that's what Paul's saying with the marriage piece. Granted, that's the most confusing part of this whole passage. But that seems to be it. But it's not just the remarriage. Let's keep going further. Paul is also warning about the, some younger women in Ephesus who seem to be roaming the streets. Apparently, they had some on the church's payroll, some enrolled on this list who were using the time that they now had supported by the church to wander from house to house, spreading gossip in the city. They're roaming the streets, causing trouble, and they're doing all of this while on the church's tab. So Paul tells Timothy, look at verse 14, so I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Now, I've blown by that passage a hundred times. Never thought an awful lot about what that means for us. But as I've been meditating on that this week, I think there's a really important lesson for us, church. William Mounts, one commentator, captures the scene vividly. He says, The picture it paints, that is verse 14, the picture it paints is of the enemy gaining a toehold in the church because of the widow's misconduct. And from this toehold making his attack upon the church. So as I was preparing this week and meditating on this, it just really struck me. This is fascinating. Paul's writing to Timothy and he's saying, hey Timothy, you've got a a crisis here. You've got to care for these widows. You need to be generous. You need to do this well. But if you don't do this well, Timothy, you're actually giving, the, the devil himself, you're giving the enemy a foothold to attack the church. If you're careless with this, and you're actually undermining the, the work that you're doing. So think about it this way. Timothy, the church, they're, they're putting together their offerings. And with those offerings, they're supporting gospel ministry, right? The word's going forth. And they're supporting missions work. They're supporting the gospel spread. But then they're also putting their money into benevolence ministry, which we would all assume is really good, right? That you probably feel really good when you see the benevolence ministry grow, And Paul's saying, but you know what? As good as you feel about that, Timothy, you're using some of that money to fund people who are going around the city undoing all of the work that we're doing. With one dollar, you pay a guy to preach the gospel. With another dollar, you're paying somebody to gossip and spread rumors and, and ruin our witness. All of this on the church's payroll. And as I wrestled through that, I thought, we just need to think about that as a church. That when we help people, when we give benevolent care, we need to make sure that we 're not undermining the work that we 're not funding people in their sin and then my mind immediately went back to Second Thessalonians. Uh, raise your hand if you were here when we worked through first and second Thessalonians. a few of you probably two years ago um, in Second Thessalonians, Paul writes to the church there, and they had a similar situation only instead of widows in Thessalonica they had just like this weird doctrine, bad heresy, and there were some men in the church who were absolutely convinced that Christ was going to return, or, or that he already had, and they stopped working altogether. They said, what's the point in working, wasting my time with work, when I know that Jesus is coming back any day? And so they're sleeping on couches, moseying around the city, being lazy, and they were supported by the church, right? The church made it possible for them to live this way. And so when Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, he said, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. And Paul's speaking again to that concept. He says, don't enable those guys in their heresy, in their error, to to make the gospel look like a, a joke. So in Thessalonica, or in Ephesus, or in Aurelia, Paul would have us see that the church should not be funding sin and foolishness. The church should not be funding laziness. The church should not be funding gossip. If our helping is enabling people to spend the entire day moseying about, stirring up trouble, setting little fires in the city that you're then going to have to put out as a ministry, then your helping is hurting. John Stott says here, the church's sense of social responsibility is not to encourage irresponsibility in others. Because that kind of help doesn't help anyone except the devil. Now, if we concluded the sermon right here, we would all walk out of this place and we would never help anyone ever again. You know, you just think, my goodness, this is complicated. It's complex. This is a disaster. We should just throw our hands up in the air and say, government, you do it. Or or parachurch ministries, you do it. Or anybody but me, you do it. Because I don't want to be undermining the family. right? I don't want to be robbing people of dignity. I don't want to be bothered with prudence and priority. And I certainly don't want to be enabling people in sin. So I think I'm just going to pass on this altogether. together. Well, according to the word of God, that's not an option for us. I want to conclude this morning where Paul started. And originally this was point one. But as I wrestled through the first draft of the sermon, I, again, if we landed there, that would have a certain tone to it, wouldn't it? So I want us to land at really the heart of this passage And in the heart of this passage, Paul teaches us, the church must be benevolent. That is is the heartbeat of this passage. All of the parameters and priorities and fences, all of that stuff, he's building it around this glorious obligation. The church must be benevolent. In verse 3, he says, Honor widows who are truly widows. Because, Timothy, as complicated as it can become... The household of God can never, must never, turn a blind eye to the need that exists all around her. The church must be marked by mercy. In fact, one of the primary reasons, humanly speaking, one of the primary reasons why the church grew so rapidly in the first few centuries was because of the mercy ministry, because of the radical generosity. Remember, the church was heavily persecuted in the early years. It's a miracle that the church exists. People were being killed for following Jesus. You would expect that everybody would renounce their faith and and turn away from this whole thing. And, And yet, even as people were being tortured and killed, the gospel spread and spread and spread, and believers came to Christ, and the whole world was flipped upside down. Why is that? Well, one of the human reasons why that is is because of the way that they cared for those that were in need. It was compelling. In a Greco-Roman culture that that forgot about all kinds of people, forgot about the widows, forgot about the orphans, forgot about the sick, forgot about the poor. In a culture like that, when these people came around resembling Christ and loving all of those who had been cast off by the world, people took notice. Uh, Church historian Ruth Tucker presents a letter written by a Roman emperor in the 4th century. I'm going to read her little citation here. She says, Emperor Julian a Hellenist, was concerned that members of his own religion not be outshone by Christians, whom he referred to as atheists. I want to be clear so you don't mishear this quote. Christians were often referred to as atheists in uh, the first few centuries. I don't know if you knew that. Because they were ministering in a a Greco-Roman culture where everybody was worshipping thousands of gods. And the Christians were the ones who said, these thousands of gods aren't gods at all. There's one god. And so they were ironically called atheists, the ones who didn't believe in the gods. So when he talks about atheists here, he's talking about Christians. And still, some of you are not going to hear this quote right, but I'm going to take that risk. The atheists are Christians. He says, Atheism, Christianity, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar. And that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. That's what caused the gospel to spread so rapidly. Of course, miraculous by the power of the Holy Spirit. But that was one of the things that just set it off. The world was turned upside down. When Christians get this right, the culture notices Our mercy ministry should set us apart from the world. Jesus taught us to minister to the whole person. And he modeled it. He taught and he healed. The Apostle James, picking up on this and making sure that we don't miss it, explains, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So in the same way that Jesus went to the lost and the broken and the destitute, He modeled that for us, and he called us to resemble it, to go to those who are in need, overflowing in mercy. Now, our passage this morning is a needed reminder that our word ministry must always be accompanied by good works, and so if you can imagine kind of two pillars on one side, you've got to hold them both. On one side, you've got word ministry, the gospel proclamation. We've got to minister in word. If you let go of that, if you stop ministering in word, then now you're just a charity over here, and and charities are used, but but it's not a church, and it's not our calling. So we've got to hold on to that, and yet we also need to hold on to deed ministry, mercy ministry. We need to care for the poor. We need to meet people in their physical need. We need to not turn a blind eye to it. James talks about what good is it if you find someone who's poor, and you say, the Lord bless you, the Lord bless you, but you don't give them anything to eat. So we've got to hold on to both of these things. Some churches are inclined to let go of the word ministry. They just, I love helping people in their poverty, um, but when I start preaching, then that comes across a bit offensive, so I think I'm going to lean in over here. Other churches, and I would suggest that we would lean this way, hold on to word ministry and say, boy, it doesn't matter if you feed people if they go to hell. Like We've got to preach the word. We've got to tell them the gospel, which is absolutely true. But sometimes those churches can forget that actually we need to minister to the whole person. We need to care about the fact that their belly's empty and that they're sleeping on the street we need to we need to care about those things so this text is calling us to hold these intention and church let's just resolve as a people to hold these intention our fifth core value as a church says we deeply believe that our gospel presentation should balance word and deed in a faithful and culturally relevant manner amy carmichael was a missionary in india and she had some pushback from her peers and one of the things that they would often complain about was that she spent so much time caring for the physical needs of the people she was ministering to. And I'm not an expert on Amy Carmichael, so I'm not going to weigh in on whether or not she was, she, maybe she was leaning too far to the side. I don't know. But she had this great response, which is so excellent. I want to read this to you. She's responding to these critics and she says, One cannot save and then pitchfork souls into heaven. Souls are more or less securely fastened to the bodies. And as you cannot get the souls out and deal with them separately, you have to take them both together. Which is exactly right, isn't it? It was complicated in Ephesus. Man, so much need. The system was being exploited. It was broken. They They were funding sin. And there were enough theological problems in Ephesus to keep Timothy tied up for a lifetime. So he had every excuse to say, all right, I'm going to let somebody else deal with this. Yet Paul wanted Timothy to know, he wants us to know, that he could not have a faithful gospel ministry in Ephesus if he ignored the physical need that was surrounding him. You cannot faithfully preach the gospel while turning a blind eye to the poor. Such a ministry is antithetical to the ministry that Jesus modeled for us. It's the opposite it doesn't resemble Christ. When we stand before Him and we give an account for the ministry here at Redeemer, we want to hear Him say this. I'm going to read this from Matthew 25. We want to hear Him say, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? For I was hungry and you gave Me food. I was thirsty you gave Me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. We are the recipients of this wonderful, amazing grace, aren't we? This scandalous gospel that He saw us in our spiritual poverty and He made us rich. That He left His throne so as to lift us up. He took our place on the cross. He gave us life. Each and every one of us, Christians, is a walking, talking monument of mercy. And that mercy must overflow. It must. It must overflow to widows. It must overflow to the homeless. It must overflow to the immigrant, to the orphan, to the neighbor, to the city, to the ends of the earth. And through our generosity, the aroma of Christ should follow us everywhere we go. There should not be such a thing as a stingy Christian. We are by nature, because of who has saved us and what he has done and how he has saved us, Christians are by nature generous, or we should be. So as we conclude, how are we doing with that? How are we, Redeemer, doing with that? How are you, Christian, doing with that? Are you generous with your time? Or is it all for you? Are you generous with your talents? Or do you use it all for you? Are you generous with your treasure? Or is it all stored up for you? Do we resemble the King who left Heaven's throne to lift us up out of our death? When we stand before Him, Will he say to us, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. In a sermon preached in the 4th century, Gregory of Nazianzus finished with this thought, and I think it's appropriate for us to finish with it here in the 21st century. While we may, let us visit Christ. Let us heal Christ. Let us feed Christ. Let us clothe Christ. Let us welcome Christ. Let us honor Christ christ since the lord of all will have mercy and not sacrifice so let us offer to him through the poor who are today downtrodden to that end let's pray together god we just ask for your help today Lord, I pray that you would help us to take that and to hear it as we should and to respond to it in a way that glorifies you. Lord, I want to acknowledge that uh, that this is application of the gospel we've received. And Lord, we can't do this apart from the grace that we've received. That if if we just take this on our own and we say, I, I, I've got to do better. I've got to serve the poor better. I've got to be more generous. More, more, more. Do more. That we're just going to turn into legalists. We're going to crumble and fall apart. We can only live this way when we see with eyes wide open the grace we've received in Christ. When we understand completely that this world is not our home. When we, when we see the eternal scale and we see that this life is just is fleeting and that we're surrounded by eternal souls and we want to be used by you to to spread the gospel and to tell them about the hope that we have. Lord, we want them to be worshiping you for all eternity. And Lord, we're surrounded by people who are not worshiping you. Lord, and you deserve their praise. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to meet them in their spiritual need. God, that we would preach, that we'd be faithful, that we would evangelize. God, we acknowledge that we fall short in that. We can be cowardly. Lord, we can be selfish. We can so busy ourselves that we don't even have time to tell people about this hope. God, help us. And help us as a church, Lord, to never shy away from preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the physical need all around us and that it would break our hearts, Lord, that there are men and women created in the image of God who are going to sleep on the street tonight and tomorrow night and the next night and who are going to tuck away into whatever little shelter they can find in the winter and hope that they survive to the morning. And that happens here, God. And I pray that it would just so break us, Lord that, we would, Lord, that we would respond in a way that's appropriate. And, Lord, that you'd give us wisdom. Lord, that as we seek to provide solutions and seek to bring help, Lord, that it wouldn't be the kind of help that just perpetuates a problem. Lord, our government looks at this problem, and they've got whole teams and committees of people who have spent seven, eight years studying this, and, and they don't know how to solve this, Lord. Conservatives have plans, and the NDP have plans, and the Liberals have plans, and none of them have been able to solve this, Lord. It is, it is like an ocean of problem that we're trying to empty out with a teacup, and yet, Lord, and yet you won't let us throw up our hands and walk away. So, Lord, help us as Redeemer, while we cannot solve every need and we can't fix every problem. We can, can we fix any problem, Lord? We, we just want to be used by you. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to roll up our sleeves. Lord, there are children that need to be adopted and fostered. Lord, there are are hungry people who need to be fed. There are systems that need to be fixed from the inside. Uh, Lord, and in all of these things, Lord, we want to be used by you. So, Lord, help. Uh, Lord, enable us. And I pray that we'd be found ready and willing, as as complicated as it can become. So, Lord, we surrender this to you. We love you. And in all of these things, Lord, ultimately, we just want to see you glorified. I pray that we would have people just like Emperor Julian looking at the ministry that's done by Christians and just saying, wow, this is really something supernatural. And Lord, that it would direct them to you. We we long for that, Lord. So let it come here in Aurelia, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?